Oh, man. Jack, I think we should talk about the uh, NSF phone hacks. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting thing to chat about because it's more than a traditional breach. It's actually an indication of things that are much better. And you're the one who turned me on to, to this in the first place. So, you know, as we sort of set the stage, because not everybody will necessarily be familiar with it, do you want to set the stage as you did with me about how this whole thing came about? <laughs> the, whole, the whole story? Well, just a little bit. For, 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 for our readers that don't want to go through the multi-page article, which will stick in the show notes from either the New York Times or the Washington Post, let's uh, stick it in a perhaps reachable nutshell. Yeah. All right. So how this came to be, I have an acquaintance. And when this acquaintance listens to this, he's going to know that we made this episode for him. <laughs> and really, <laughs> it will be uh, an, kind of an apology, but also letting you know stuff is going to be just fine. So how this came to be, acquaintance of mine who I love to banter back and forth with and is a super funny guy, says to me, and this is this is on the heels of a like very long conversation. And says, um, he says, Hey, I I store some sensitive stuff in my iPhone. I know I shouldn't do it, but is is that safe? You as a security guy, like, what do you think? You know, and I say, I was like, hey man, like I I think you're like, I think you're fine. Like, what you're telling me is not ideal, right? Like <laughs> people say you probably shouldn't do it. But the fact you do, and you have to store it somewhere out of all the places, your iPhone is probably in an okay spot. Because as long as you have a passcode on it, you do all the stuff you're supposed to do, phone's encrypted, even if you lost it, no one's going to be able to get into it, right? It would, it, would, it would take them a long time, assuming that you have a pin and all that stuff on there. So he's just like, okay, great. He's like, that's kind of what I thought. Feel better. He said it. So fast forward a month. It wasn't even, this wasn't even that long ago. This dude texts me. He's like, you lied. You lied to me. You, and he s- sends me this link about the NSO phone hacks. And uh, he's like, he's like, is this real? I was like, yeah, it's probably real. And so the, by the rapidly declining half-life of security advice. Yeah. Like, yeah. I was like, the advice I gave you was last week. That's a long time ago, bro. And um, so anyway, here we are. I'm talking about the phone hacks. And um Dude, I just want you to know life is going to be okay, but we're going to, we're going to talk about it in more detail. So the story came out. I think I, I think we've kind of heard rumblings of uh, the NSO phone hacks, and I, I think they're calling it the 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 Pegasus software, yep. right? Yep. yep. And um, but the the whole premise of it is like just topically on the surface. News article came out. They said, you know, three-letter agencies in the Israeli government have a way to remotely hack iPhones. So as long as they have your number, they can triangulate on your position, send some type of signal or injection into the phone that user either acknowledges or doesn't acknowledge. Like it's it's somewhat it's transparent to the to the end user that this I'm using air quotes my finger, but the hack has occurred. But it gives you full control over that user's iPhone, right? Audio files, actually any any file on the iPhone allows you to hear phone conversations, allows you to just like turn on the camera, basically gives you all, all access to the phone. And so the story basically started to unfold that these series of hacks 
again, air quotes with my fingers, have occurred on high profile journalists and in the sense of like espionage, right? And so the New York, I think it was the New York Times, if if I'm remembering it correctly, um, outlined the scenario where the Israeli government comes in to, you know, Virginia, to a three-letter agency, rolls in with like their bucket full of servers, spins up this thing, and spins up this program, and they have all all of their new three-letter agency recruits go down to like the local Verizon store or AT&T store or wherever it is, pick up some brand new iPhones, harden them to the best that they possibly can to like any any setting possible to harden your device, come back into the office. And by the time they had come back into the office, ev- everybody's phone was was already popped. Anyway, so news, news got out of this. And basically the gist of it is the world is like the world is crashing down. The sky is completely fallen and like chicken little is freaking the F out. (laughs) Right. And so, but you start to dig into it a little bit deeper and you realize that the vulnerabilities that exist, either known or zero day have to do with either knowingly or unknowingly patched or unpatched phones. Right. So in cases where phones are unpatched and they have an older version of the OS, this is from memory, but it was a uh, version 14.8 of Apple's iOS had a known one of these known vulnerabilities in it, and that's actually what it, what allowed the exploits. And so, basically, what I can surmise from reading multiple news stories is that due to a combination of known vulnerabilities that are being exploited by uh, said Pegasus software. And I would assume a treasure trove of zero day vulnerabilities that are unknown are being exploited by this program, which is allowing these attacks to continue to be successful. And I would take it one step further, would say that the um, proliferation an adoption of 5G and ultra wideband is only further enabling the ability of these tacks to be successful. Yeah. I, I, and as you describe it, right, and as you describe the combination of zero days and a known platform, you know, I, I think it's interesting to talk about the reason why this one got so many headlines, right? It was not so much the vagaries of the software that allowed people to take advantage of it. It was the intent to which it was put. Right, so the investigative journalists, you know, took a look and to see who was actually using it. They uh, talked with a group called Amnesty Security to try to figure out who actually was getting affected by this, and yeah. they were able to identify thousands and thousands of, you know, targets for this from the information they were able to gather. Right, so I think it was really, it was immensely interesting to read why everyone was as worried about it as it was. It was not because so much that the systems were vulnerable. It was that someone who had weaponized that vulnerability um, had sold it to people who then used it in a bad way. You know, recognize that some of the original purposes, I think, for that meeting probably in Virginia was the idea was that this technology could be used to track uh, purveyors of terror, right? You know, it could actually break up organized crime figures. You know, it could be used in a way that, you know, I think a lot of governmental organizations are like, well, this is a really good idea. And as with everything else, the same technology can be put to the exact sort of opposite purpose 
right? It's like we saw um, when Eternal Blue and Double Pulsar came out and Shadow Brokers were selling them out and that became part of the WannaCry attack and not Petya and what have you, right? We saw that the intelligence community had developed another thing of their own. In this case, it was the US intelligence community and it stumbled its way out of secrecy and ended up in the open market and it was used. You know, perhaps it wasn't sold as directly to folks or um, as openly to folks, but it was sold by a community to another community that wanted, you know, put it to bad purposes. And I think in a lot of ways, the community that gets touched by it, that gets affected by it, like this group um, at Amnesty, they were uh, super concerned. And I, I want to just give you a quote from one of the uh, researchers, a guy by the name of Claudio Guarnieri. It was, he, he said, and I quote, primarily, I'm just here to keep the death count. He felt as useless as a 14th century doctor confronting the Black Plague. Ooh. Right? Let's, let's, let's break out the abacus. It's, it's colorful. <laughs> uh, hat tip to the Washington Post, you know, for keeping it unemotional and cold. Um, but, <laughs> you know, but, but as, basically... As, as cold as that guy's death count. <laughs> exactly, the death count. And so, you know, I think what we're looking at here is yet another case where we talk about breach of the week all the time. We talk about software vulnerabilities. We talk about responsibility uh, for folks maintaining this. And it seems like we're always pointing at the folks who are exercising known vulnerabilities. And we so hesitate to point a finger at, we'll call it the system. It's not just the vendors. It's not just the operators, like in the case of the cell phone product, what have you. But we, we, we hesitate to point at the system and say, you know, why is it that all these vulnerabilities continue to exist? You know, it's a complicated operating system. It's a complicated thing. But the this team of researchers was able to create attacks which leveraged known and unknown uh, vulnerabilities so that the end user doesn't even have a choice, right? Uh, some of these messages, as you read through the analysis of the attack, they would land and simply in the processing of a text message prior to the user actually interacting with it. It's not like somebody clicked anything. That activity itself um, was capable of actually infecting the machine. And so, you know, to me, as it always does, it calls back upon us, you know, when are we going to get to the point where something that feels like the FDA for food or for drugs is being applied to software that is as pervasive as the phones that sit in all of our pockets, as the software that we all run for such critical functions? Because it really is there. And I'm just going to rattle on just for a second more because your friend, I'm with your friend, right, on the fact that this is kind of troubling. We have a false sense of intimacy with our mobile devices, Right? We think that it's a phone. Right, For those of us who are 1,000 years old, we remember when phones had wires. But I think you know, even people who are exchanging private messages and people who are you know, deeply involved in various applications, they think the phone is somehow like a Dixie cup. And there's a magical string extending between their Dixie cup and the private person that communicate with the other end. And hey, my Dixie cup's perfectly safe. And what can happen? It's just a big cup. right? And it's not like that. These are super complicated devices that have a load of services running on them to make them as functional as they are. And so that sense of intimacy, like this is my private little phone. No, it's not. This is pretty much the equivalent. It's an overstatement. So I'm just going to flag for the show notes. This is an overstatement. Um, this is like a public access terminal in internet cafe, right? <laughs> and people are like, no, this is my private phone. I have the cone of silence on. And so it's just, it's just not what people expect. And I think that if we're going to allow people to continue to believe that these are private communication devices, we have to start thinking a little bit more thoroughly about what are we doing to make it that private device for them? Because I think we're setting a false expectation. Yeah, it's, um, it's kind of an interesting thought. When I was listening to you just talk about that, it made me think about uh, home security. And my kids, right, when they get scared, they run into their bedroom and hide under the covers. And it's kind of like the same thing. I'd be like, um, 
that might feel like a safe place, but by the way, your covers aren't going to protect you from anything. (laughs) (laughs) A deep Vermont chill, perhaps. But beyond that, not much. Yeah, yeah. Just, I mean, it's the same thing with your phone, right? It's just this, uh, this the illusion of security. Well, yeah. well, and, and, and you know, to the conversation you had with your pal, right? The the encryption that's on the phone protects it when you drop it on the side of the ground, and people have a hard time, even if they're the FBI, ripping the thing open and digging through the data. But when I can create an RCE against it by sending a text message that I don't even open or respond to, that encryption's irrelevant, right? Because that text message capability has all the privileges I have, as though I had entered the code to get into the phone, right? And so there's this, yeah, there's this false illusion. Yeah, and I would. You know, and I, I think the thing I would thing I would hit home is um, this attack or exploit has to be very targeted, right? It's not not like everybody's going to be exploited by this, and because the software exists, doesn't mean like everybody's phones are going to like fold up like a gordita and go into the Borg. You, <laughs> you know, the people that are being targeted and analyzed are the ones that pose a threat to someone somewhere, right? And those individuals are of elevated interest to, you know, to someone, right? So like, it's like what you said earlier is like, uh, I don't know, you, you listed off a, like, kind of like a population or kind of type of group, but uh, that would be of interest. But the one in the Times, I'm just kind of thumbing through the Times here, like reading this fine institution and publication. <laughs> uh, spyware has turned up on the phones of activists, dissidents, lawyers, doctors, nutritionists, and even children in countries like Saudi Arabia, uh, UAB, and Mexico. Uh, Lobbyists who are advocating for expanded voting rights, Mexican nutritionists lobbying for national soda tax. So it's, uh, there's, there's motive for, for espionage in these cases. So, you know, I I think for the average person, you know, like even the one I was corresponding with, it's like, he's not doing anything to get on anybody's radar. So I don't think anybody's super interested. I mean, he's an interesting guy. Don't get me wrong. And if he listens to this, if I don't say he is in fact an interesting guy, (laughs) I'm going to hear about that too. (laughs) Yeah, you know, maybe there's another bit of a story here, though, right? Because he asked you that question because he knew in his heart of hearts that what he was doing is probably a little less secure than it could have been. Uh, yeah. But it was convenient, right? And I, I hate to go back to the one minus one trust discussion that we've had in the pit of despair before, right? But if you exercise one <laughs> minus one trust, right? Then, that was well done, dude. Thank you. I pride myself on the juxtaposition of terms out of the pit. But if you if you focus on one minus one trust, then that whatever that information <laughs> was he was looking to store, he shouldn't have assumed that having access to the phone and being able to open it up was sufficient security. Because Lord knows he could have it open up and walk away. You know, it, it could be some flaw in something. Someone could watch him do whatever he does to, to open it up. And so he probably should have been thinking like we will about applications or about shared data, what have you. And one my next one trust model, you before they get the access, you want to make sure they really are who they say they are. So for our listeners, remember that too, right? Remember, this is not a perfectly secure device. None of these things are, all the ones that are surrounding all of us right now. And so be thinking about when something's really private and you want to be really careful, just make sure you understand that they're all going to be vulnerable one way or the other, either through a mistake you make, a mistake a programmer makes, a mistake an infrastructure provider makes, or just the way the thing's built. Yeah. Jack, just as a side note while you're talking, you just you just had Holly in stitches. <laughs> That's excellent. Yeah. That's excellent. Uh, th- thank God we found somebody who's brilliant and easily amused. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, you got you got the easily easily amused part on my side. We got Hollywood <laughs> the brilliance. Gotta go. Yeah, you're right. He uh, in his case, I mean, I he 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 knows. I mean, that's why he was asking. Right. Right. On. But uh, it's, I mean, and, and and anybody in security knows it's uh, it's more about risk mitigation than it is about uh, digging a hole in your backyard and burying something six feet under dirt, which right is also on. pretty safe. And it's also probably dead at that point. Fact. <laughs> Fact. <laughs> All right, Jack. I think I'm burnt on this one, man. Uh, as am I, but I'm glad you brought it up. It was a really interesting study. You don't get a lot. We don't get a lot of publicly known weaponization studies. And I think it's helpful. I think it's helpful to understand because we've watched it happen with ransomware. Ransomware as a service. We're seeing it happen with credential theft, theft and resale. We've seen it with people doing doxing as a function of ransomware. So this is a rapidly evolving marketplace. And you know, my guess is at some point in time, we reach a tipping point and people start saying, all right, I'll take less functionality. I'll make it a little bit harder to use, but I want that security that I think I want. And maybe that's where we're going. Yeah. There's um, taking a step back and looking at where we are in 2022. It's interesting to see the evolution of basically the, the digital underground arms trade. <laughs> like we've seen it, we've seen it with actual like physical weapons for a long time, like the black market and how people procure like actual like traditional guns on like the black market. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm like, and actually I, I have the vision of like the guys from like war dogs, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's kind of the same thing here. I'm just, I, I would imagine the day where, uh, you've got the, the digital version of that going on. It might, it might already be here actually. Sounds like it might be. Anyway, well, you need cybersecurity help? You want to sh- shoot the stuffing with Jack and I or try to <laughs> blow something up in a digital sense? Drink whiskey. Uh, we are your guys. <laughs> you can hit us up at pwned.newharborsecurity.com. Holly, you want to you, you want to chime in? You, Holly, you've got you've got some people wanting to hear from you. By the way, A little something. Do I? Yeah, you do. <laughs> she, she's real. She's real. I don't have. I don't have any cybersecurity input. <laughs> yeah. But secret is she's the smartest one in the group. So that's a fact. I would not yeah. say that. <laughs> there we go. All right. Jack, Holly, Grazie. Prego.